Every day of our lives is spent in the built environment. We live in homes and apartments, drive on roads, get gas from pipelines, go to work in buildings, make purchases in stores and restaurants. We rely on factories, plants, doctor's offices, and hospitals for our basic human needs. And while our world continues to shift and grow and change, the development and delivery of the built environment has fallen dramatically behind. Welcome to The Built Revolution. We're here to engage the leaders, visionaries, and innovators who are revolutionizing the built environment. This podcast is brought to you by Continuum Advisory Group and the Construction Industry Institute. This is Gretchen Gagel with Continuum Advisory Group. I'm so excited today to welcome Peter Senge to The Built Revolution, uh, famed author of The Fifth Discipline, The Art and Practice of the Learning Organization, and somebody who's been out consulting to organizations for um, quite some time. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. So tell us a little bit. I'm fascinated. Um, the, you know, the first time I read this book uh, back in the 90s, and then I revisited it during my PhD. And in fact, when I pulled it out for this podcast, it's actually falling apart. So that tells you how many times I've referred back to your book, The Fifth Discipline. Tell us a little bit about how you became interested in the topics of learning organizations and systems thinking, et cetera. Well, it's one of those questions that's not easy to answer because I can't really recall not being interested. I, I mean, in terms of understanding complexity or interdependence or systems thinking, whatever language you want to use, uh, I mean, I think I grew up with that interest. Uh, I grew up in Los Angeles. I grew up at a time when I, literally in a decade, you could watch Paradise vanish. Because when I was a young kid, you know, first growing up in LA, it was paradise. I mean, you were outside. I don't think I was indoors more than three or four days out of the year, typically. Uh, and it was just a beautiful, beautiful place to grow up. And by within 10 years, uh, they would have smog alerts where they'd have to keep, um, you know, children off the streets. And that happened remarkably quickly. And it, I think it left an indelible impression on me how quickly things can change. Um, and that was because it was the boom period and everything was growing like crazy. And Los Angeles uh, and you, the U.S. in general has a kind of a free-for-all uh, development market where there's very little real zoning. And, you know, if you can build it, you do build it. And if there's a lot of money chasing after a lot of projects, a lot of projects get built that maybe really nobody ever needed. But that was really beside the point. The real thing was that, you know, the, the impact on the larger natural and social environment was was huge and it was hugely adverse. So I think I grew up with those kind of concerns, the way rapid development gets out of control and ends up with, you know, sure, some people make some money, but the vast majority of people find that their life is not really benefited by that. And that became kind of the metaphor of sorts for a, a lifelong interest around how is it that human beings can work so hard to produce outcomes that actually nobody really wants. Hmm. Um, I mean, it's really hard to find people in favor of climate change or poverty or destruction of species or all the large issues in the world that really do shape our world, whether we pay attention to them or not, they're always sitting there in the background. Nowadays, more and more actually in the foreground. And they're all basically unintended side effects 
of people working hard to do something that they really do want to accomplish. Um, so that is, in some ways, a defining feature of why this whole field of systems thinking is what it is. You know, if if our social organizational and social systems pretty much accomplish consistently what we want, there would be no field. The problem is, while accomplishing what we want, we often accomplish a lot of what we don't want. Right. It, it's so fascinating you bring that up. I'm actually teaching a course at the University of Denver in the MBA program right now called Leading with Integrity. And we talk about corporate social responsibility and sustainability and and watch a specific video about the reintroduction of wolves in, in Yellowstone and the impact that, that they had, that they didn't really understand all these things that were happen, happening um, to the environment were because they had uh, eradicated the wolves. And um, sometimes we don't even understand the systems and all the feedback loops aren't giving us the information to understand what's happening within the system. Yeah, that's exactly right. Certainly not in the time period you're looking. So a lot of times those feedback loops are producing a lot of consequences, but you don't see them because you're very focused on this two-year window or whatever. And they're longer term and they're, they're really distributed in space as well as time those unintended side effects. Yeah. And it's so interesting because systems thinking applies in so many different levels. I mean, it it applies as an individual, it applies as a team, like we work with construction teams and engineering and construction, and we don't have those feedback loops and mechanisms at times, even within that little mini socio system of a construction project Mm -hmm. and the um, unintended um, consequences. consequences of things that we're doing on the project. Right. right. Yes. So, you know, the, the kind of second chapter in your question or is that um, that was kind of like a lifelong interest. And, and then gradually, you know, being very a practical person, I was really interested, well, how do you actually do something with all this? And there was a book written while I was a graduate student, at MIT initially called The Limits to Growth, which was a huge global bestseller. It kind of really in many ways catalyzed what today you'd call the whole sustainability movement around the world. But that was so global. It's kind of impossible to know if you're learning anything about how to improve issues at that scale. So I really drifted kind of sideways, drifted into starting to work a lot with businesses because I found a relatively small number of business people who had the same questions, but they were working in a setting where there was at least a reasonable chance if you tried something different, you'd have some idea, was it working or not? So right. that kind of learning process really is is another way to say, you know, well, you try something, how do you see what the consequences are? Can you see, you know, in some broader sense, what's working, what's not working and, and learn as a result? So that kind of led me into the world of business without ever in, intending to be focused there. And so one of the things you say early on in your book, as I was um, rereading it uh, yesterday, does your organization have a learning disability? And um, that's one of the things I think is so fascinating about this book, The Art and Practice of the Learning Organization. Tell us a little bit about that. What is a learning, uh, what what are the best learning organizations look like in your mind that you've experienced? Well, um I think there there are things that a lot of us would recognize, perhaps almost more emotionally or intuitively. It's spirit, it's energy, it's trust. You know, there's nothing more important in any working team than can people trust each other? 
And that includes being able to trust each other to when they make mistakes or when they're really not certain or when you, you're afraid and you're really not sure, geez, are we doing the right thing here? Um, a lot of times in a lot of teams, people don't say anything because they don't want to look bad. They don't want to look stupid. Uh, they don't want people to think that they're not fully competent in what they do. <laughs> but, you mm-hmm. know, if you're 100% competent, there's nothing to learn. Right. Learning only arises out of incompetence. So if you think about that a little bit, you realize, well, it really has a lot to do with the climate and culture of the work setting. Um, And that's actually, as I was saying, how I really got drawn into an interest in business. I was fascinated by meeting business people who really understood that. And uh, they were really hard at work on creating a more values-based culture that was more tolerant, but ultimately more able to innovate and learn. So none of this was just driven by a philosophic or intellectual interest, but by very deeply pragmatic interests. It was many years later, but eventually one person said it very succinctly. You know, our, our conviction is the root source of all competitive advantage is the ability of your organization to learn faster than its competitors. So all that kind of came together very gradually. What drew me to it was really that kind of quality of energy, excitement, you know, doing something people really care about, and the the willingness to to take an approach where we don't have to have all the right answers. Right. It's so interesting because one of the the things that we've been using with our work with um, construction teams and trust, et cetera, is the Aristotle project, the Google Aristotle project, which really talks about that psychological safety that you need to have in order to have a high-performing team of people. And, and I think that's one of the key challenges in our industry. Right. It's a key challenge in every industry. And, and it's interesting that, that that's uh, well-known today, uh, but the idea is very old. Of course, and anybody who's ever been part of a working team. I mean, you could even extend this to teams in sports or the performing arts. You know, if if you if you really can't trust each other to hold your vulnerabilities, so to speak, to to um, uh, kind of have confidence that we can make progress, even though all of us have a lot to learn, as opposed to everybody having to show up maintaining a face or a facade. I mean, that's not new ideas. I think people have understood this intuitively for a very long time. It's just that today, in some ways, it's more critical than ever. Right. And, and how do you think people go about doing that in the best way? What, what, I mean, if I'm, if I'm walking into a billion dollar construction program and I know I need to create this atmosphere of psychological safety and, and we're going to co-learn and collaborate, what do I do to do that? Well, that's always the $64 question. So otherwise, you know, it's just a bunch of good ideas. And right. you know, I, I, I'm an engineer also by training originally. So I think it always predisposed me to, you know, say, well, what are the tools you can use? You know, you, you have these great ideas, but how do you go about it? Um, and that's in many ways what all of our work has always been focused on, that one one question. And we've always found that, you know, there's just two or three recurring domains you pay attention to. Um, so on any project, you have goals and you have kind of project objectives, but you may or may not really have any spirit of genuine vision. What I mean by vision in this sense is not mystical. It's that, you know, why do we care about this? You know, so okay, we've got objectives, we got these goals, but why do they really matter to me? 
You know, is this something I would tell my kids about? You know, does it have a deeper meaning? Now, why is that important? Because it's important because, you know, building psychological safety over time takes people taking risks. You don't get there by throwing a light switch on the wall. You get there by, by going through cycles of trying something and really stretching yourself and finding out it didn't quite work. But, you know, we really helped each other through that. You know, you, 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 you build psychological safety like you would build, you know, collaboration on a river raft. You know, you, you, you really have to see that you can count on each other to be there to support you. But that none of that will happen if people aren't really willing to stick their neck out. So the first principle is, does it matter enough that you're really willing to stretch? Not because someone told you you should stretch, but because you really care about it. And you are naturally drawn to a more, let's say, innovative, uh, committed mindset. So that's always a cornerstone. And all the work on personal vision, building shared vision, you know, the two of the five disciplines in the organizational learning framework that's presented in the fifth discipline we developed really in the 80s. Uh, that book was published in 1990 initially. Um, really come down to that aspirational dimension. You know, is there sufficient aspiration here? Is it something we really care about? Because if the answer is not really, then the amount of risk we'll take is not much. Right. And, and so it's a very personal thing. It's very natural. You know, you, you really got to care to stick your neck out. And then the second dimension that is always important is really developing skill in reflection and conversation. In other words, a lot of times people make mistakes. Things don't work out quite well, but they're paying no attention. Somebody else sees it, but I don't see it. I don't see the consequences of my own action because I don't want to see them or I'm not making any effort to see them or the team thinks it's great. The problem is the other teams with which it's interacting don't think they're so great. Is the team open? Does it really ask questions? Is it trying to develop, you know, the technical term in the learning lingo is disconfirming evidence. In other words, well, we think it's great, but does somebody else think otherwise? And, and that's very risky also. So, again, you have to be willing to take the risk. But there are a lot of skills involved in that. There's a basic tool that we found gets used again and again and again and again. It's called the ladder of inference. Um, and it's basically is a, is a tool to help us distinguish what's actually happening from what we think is happening. So we all live in our thought bubbles. It's inevitable. It's not good or bad. You know, everybody – lives in a world created by their own mental models because you couldn't live otherwise. None of us right. have objective reality in our head. We have assumptions, we have past experience, and we have a lot of prejudices and biases. It's not good or bad. It's human. You know, we're not, you know, objective machines, you know, always taking in information from our environment like a recording device and objectively recording it. That's not the way human perception works. That's fine. Mental models are inescapable. They're not the problem. The problem is we forget that we have mental models. And right. we, think, we think that the idea in our head is reality. So by golly, the project really worked because I know it worked. And how do I know it worked? Because I know it worked. You know, right. in this day and age, you know, this quote, quote post-truth era, this is becoming an epidemic. 
it's real because they say it's real. And right. we all know at some level, at the individual level or collective level, sooner or later, you pay a price for that. Delusion has consequences. And, and so this discipline of mental models and the foundation of more productive conversation starts with a willingness to see that maybe I don't see it all myself. Maybe there are shortcomings in my own way of seeing things. Again, it's not good or bad. It's human. And you can see how this starts to build in a different layer of trust. It's not just about the aspiration or vision. It's about our, our ability to take in each other's points of view as equally legitimate. Nobody sees reality as it is. Underscore no. Yep. Okay? Yeah, it's so interesting that you say this because for years I've said that I think of the experiences that people have on construction projects that they tuck them into their little bag and they bring them to the next project, right? That we've all been collecting these experiences and these that create these mental models and biases. So it's like, well, that happened to me, yeah. you know, I, this bad thing happened. That's not ever going to happen again. And right. so we walk in literally, I have a vision of with a carpet bag that we've brought yeah. from all these past experiences that shape our ability to, to, be uh, effective in the future. That's exactly right. A lot of those are also um, um, stereotypes, right? So I've worked with that kind of person, kind of company, or that industry, or whatever. Mm -hmm. And we no longer see the person. We see our stereotype. So, mm -hmm. you know, and again, this is not good or bad. It's kind of inescapable at some level. The problem is, are we questioning our stereotypes? Yeah, I know you're a salesperson, but maybe you're not like every other salesperson I've ever dealt with, for example. Right. Yeah. Architect, you know, in our industry, you say architect, you say engineer, <laughs> you say owner organization, you know, large corporation, something pops into your head. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, again, those are ways of storing and retrieving lots of past experience. Let's just say 90% of which is very useful, but it's the 10% of it that really kills you. <laughs> you know? Right. And you talk in the book about team learning and, you know, the power of teams. And um, tell us a little bit about that. Well, I think that if I were to kind of make a short list of things I think have really changed in the business world in general over the last few decades, I would say that the recognition that real work, value creating activities are, are always done in teams at some level, you know, no individual by her or himself is enough. You have to work together. So, I mean, you didn't, this didn't used to be the case nearly as much as it is today. People tend to be organized in teams in all kinds of different businesses. Now, that said, just telling people they're a team would be like putting you and I on a, on a soccer pitch or a rugby match and say, okay, you're now a rugby team or a soccer team. We wouldn't be necessarily very good at it. So right. it's not just declaring yourself a team. It's what are the skills and capabilities individually and collectively that you need to build a really good team? And that's what this whole discipline of team learning is all about. Mm. Yeah, that's so, so important. I think that that's uh, often overlooked in our industry as we're continually reforming people into, into construction teams. Mm. You're doing a lot of work right now in collaborative leadership. Uh, tell us about that work. Well, that kind of uh, grew out of dealing with more and more complex issues. 
where it became very clear that a lot of the real change processes really had to occur across boundaries. And what I mean by boundaries there could be boundaries within an organization, you know, like different divisions or different functional areas of organization, but especially between organizations. Um, back around uh, 2002 or so, a long time ago, uh, because we were very concerned with the drift of the food systems in the world, we gradually helped organize a network, which is still going strong today, called the Sustainable Food Laboratory. Uh, the idea we had was we had to find a way to get businesses and NGOs, non-governmental organizations working together. Because while the food businesses are crucial for how the food industry works, very often they just don't know the social or ecological conditions which might be putting their business at risk. But the NGOs often do. So anyhow, um, and that's been a wonderful journey. As I say, that network is still quite vibrant. Um, it continues to evolve and grow. It's done a lot of work on climate adaptation and food supply. And, you know, the food industry is, is, I think, actually one of the more innovative industries in the world. We don't think of it that way because we're also focused on technology as almost the definition of innovation. But the way supply chains are managed today in a lot of the best food companies is very, very different. And the recognition and the tracking and the metrics for looking at, you know, topsoil, health of topsoil, uh, sustainability of farming communities, and so on. Uh, these were off the radar screen 15 years ago. And now they're very much on the radar screen for all the better companies because they realize if they don't have a viable long-term source of supply, they actually don't have a business. Mm -hmm. So that uh, experience was a wonderful learning setting for us to understand how the types of collaboration needed to bring about the changes needed. So yes, it's multiple businesses tied together in a, in a value chain, or a supply chain, but it's also businesses and NGOs who see different parts of that whole larger system. And together they, they can see and do things that they could never do individually. So we eventually came up with a term which actually only started using about four or five years ago called system leadership and basically defined it as uh, people who are really good at fostering collaboration for systemic change. Now, that can be relevant inside an organization, between organizations, between sectors, between geographies. Um, but it all comes down to the issue at hand. You know, so what are the types of changes really needed? Who needs to actually work with whom to get those done? And, and some people are really good at building those sort of networks. And we gradually dubbed them systems leaders. That's so fascinating because we're doing some work with the Construction Industry Institute. We actually convened uh, senior leaders in the industry in three cities last year and created a manifesto for change, mm -hmm. identifying some of the critical issues like uh, um, silos and fragmentation, lack of trust, et cetera, that we feel we really need to overcome in our industry to achieve some leapfrog type improvement in, in our ability to deliver um, capital programs. Mm -hmm. So it sounds... Sounds very similar to that. Yeah, the same problems keep recurring again and again. You know, silos are a term you hear people use in almost every industry imaginable, including ones that are not mm -hmm. even, you know, in the private sector, you know, including schools, including government. So the, the tendency to organize vertically, you know, there used to be an old joke at Ford that after 20 years in the company, people's heads no longer went side to side. They just went up to down. 
because huh. they knew exactly who they had to please. It was their boss. So, so that's a that's a deep problem that recurs in all kinds of different industries. You know, the the focus up and down the vertical silo to deliver the results your boss wants you to deliver, as opposed to build the collaborative networks across or more horizontally within the organization that are needed to actually accomplish things that cannot be accomplished just within a silo by itself. Yeah. So interesting. So I want to shift gears a little bit because I want to make sure we have have time to talk about mastery Mm -hmm. because you you talk about personal learning and mastery um, quite a book, quite a bit in the book. Um, Talk to me a little bit about that. What does that, what does that look like mastery? Well, it's a tricky word because of course the English word has a couple of different meanings. So you can have master slave. That would be one use of the word mastery. Or you can talk about a master craftsperson who has developed a a capacity to consistently produce a certain quality of result. It's most definitely the latter, not the former that we're referring to. So the notion of personal mastery really arose from recognizing that, yes, we're always focused on these bigger systemic issues. We're always focused on teams. So there's a lot of collective work involved in this. But there's also personal work, uh, deeply personal work, you know, clarifying your own vision, not just something your mother or father or teacher told you you should really want to create, but something you really do want to create. Uh, Seeing the shortcomings in your own scene, you know, what we were talking about a little bit earlier, that capacity for reflection and kind of honest inquiry into your own assumptions. Um, these are characteristics of people with very high levels of personal mastery. There's an old saying in traditional Chinese culture, a Confucian tradition, that the best people are always highly self-critical. That doesn't mean they're dumping on themselves. It doesn't mean they have a pervasive negativism. They're just always open to seeing how they could be part of the problem. These are features of people with high levels of personal mastery. Um, our definition of it was always very simple, that What if you approached your life as a master craftsperson or an artist? You know, what are the features that you would bring into anything you do as an artist? Well, you would care a lot about the aesthetics. You would care a lot about what really gets accomplished. You know, we call them the creative arts because people actually create things. You know, don't just talk about them. They actually bring something into reality. That's what the verb to create means. Um, you, You would care a lot about the subtleties of your craft. You know, probably for most people, the distinction between a master craftsperson and a novice or even an intermediately skilled craftsperson comes down to subtleties. They see things that other people don't see. They have a little higher standards. They hold themselves accountable to perhaps a little higher standard. So someone might produce something and say, well, that's very, very good. But the master says, well, you know, I don't think it's very good. I think it could be a lot, lot better. So we wanted to get at some of these really subtle qualities that individuals have to bring. In a sense, it's the cornerstone of all natural leaders. They bring a high level of personal mastery to their work. They're they're really demanding on themselves. And, and, And as a consequence, people around them become more demanding as well. And it's so interesting that you say that because you and I are both engineers and I, I think back to engineering school, and I think one of the things that the engineering and construction industry is understanding 
is that we're not spending enough time on mastery of the soft skills that we spend a lot of time, you know, heat and mouse transfer and dynamics and all those courses that we take, but that we're not spending enough time with some of the skills that we need that lead into being able to build trust, being able to collaborate, being able to co-learn, et cetera. Yeah, no, it's absolutely right. And I, I think a, a relatively small number of people have understood that for a long time. And, and not coincidentally, they're a lot of the ones who build the greatest enterprises because they really themselves have worked to continually harmonize or co-develop the technical and the, and the interpersonal and see them as, as equally important. It's not one or the other. Either way, um, it, it's such a big deal that there's a new initiative now at MIT called the Leadership Academy for Scientists and Engineers. And hmm. it's to try to focus, you know, bring MIT's name and imprimatur to this whole problem. Just what you said, that so much of our education process, but beyond that, even so much of our professional development, lifelong education process, is focused in a very unbalanced way on the technical Again, none of this implies that those technical skills are unimportant. Of course, no, no one would say that, but that they're inadequate. And we're, our organizations are full of technically competent, incompetent team players. And if you go back to that premise I said a little while ago, that real results in any setting are created collectively, not just individually, by groups, by teams, then the ability to build good teams is actually just as important as your technical skill. And guess what? That depends on listening. It depends on the quality of relationships that you foster. It depends on whether or not you are perceived as being open and a trustworthy person yourself. Do you really care about the others? I mean, a whole host of things. And, you know, I'll be honest with you. I absolutely hate the term soft skills. Mm-hmm. Because it, it's a pejorative term. You know, you got the hard it stuff is. and you got the soft stuff. Well, the irony is the soft stuff is actually the hard stuff. And any, anybody who ever tries to build teams or organizations learns that very quickly. You can have technical geniuses, but if they don't trust each other, so what? The, uh, the guy at MIT who runs the Entrepreneurship Center, which has uh, uh, been very successful at MIT, because obviously like uh, – universities around the world, a lot of kids are increasingly interested in how they're going to create enterprises themselves. He's got a whole elaborate model for entrepreneurial development. He's worked on for 20 years. He's written books. He's great. And, you know, and, and 50% of everything is the stuff that we would call all the other stuff. In other words, 50% is the quality of an idea. This is, again, entrepreneurship. The quality of an idea, your understanding of the customer, your ability to gain access to capital, your ability to kind of do good pilot research and and learn a lot in market segmented markets. And you know what the other 50% is? Your ability to build a good team. So you can take everything that makes a successful entrepreneur and put all the things in one bucket, and then you got another bucket with one core set of skills, which is how to build good teams. Because he said again and again and again, we see these very you know great potential entrepreneurs who fall on their swords, who never get anything done because they simply do not know how to build a team. So yeah. when we look at engineers or entrepreneurs, kind of the same message comes back again and again. The, the soft stuff is actually the hard stuff. Well, and it's, I think it's, it's a root issue in our industry, having been in it for 30 years now, is that we keep talking about collaboration and we have 
uh, you know, IPD integrated project delivery now, and I've been through partnering back in the nineties and, but we're not serious about giving people the skills that they need to collaborate. We just said, you know, somehow magically everybody's supposed to understand what that yeah, looks like. Yeah, we think like. it's a matter of intention, not capability. Mm-hmm. And it's not, you know, that's what um, saying, you know, I can become, I can become a mechanical engineer because I have a strong intention, or I can become a master violinist because I have a strong intention. I mean, it's so ludicrous. It just shows again how we discount the whole area. We think that if you get the message, you know it's important, you'll make it happen. And we totally disregard the, the underlying skills, capacity building process, how you learn over time. And I think it's, it's, a, it's a huge problem. It's, it's a, it, in a sense, it's the big blind spot in our whole management philosophy. We, and that's why I say I, I just hate this term soft skills. I mean, it's fine mm-hmm. you know, in terms of its denotation, but its connotation is the problem. It, it, yeah. it, it really doesn't see them as skills. Um, if you look at our work, you know, 90% of it over all these years has been how do you better understand the tools, the use of the tools, and the developmental process individually and collectively for how to actually build the ability to listen, how to build a capacity to have a different quality of conversation, particularly when people don't disagree, excuse me, well, don't agree. And you, we know the conversation could fall off the cliff quickly and just become a shouting match. How do we get good at dealing with conversations that could threaten and polarize groups? And how do we collectively see the larger systems we're part of, because nobody sees it all. But collectively, we can see a lot more than any of us can see individually. All of those are bodies of skill, which are just as demanding as any technical skills. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting because we were working with a group of leaders in a large uh, gas utility in their operations side. And we built some trust and psychological safety over the year. And, and I looked at them and I said, what would happen if all of you became expert listeners? Mm-hmm. And they looked at me like, wow, that would be really awesome. We would, mm-hmm. <laughs> we'd be so much more effective as a team if we just learn how to listen to each other. So we rolled up our sleeves and really dove into listening. And that's not something that, that most leaders of engineering or operations departments are working on in our industry. Yeah, it's also a testament to the progress you'd made that when you could pose that question, people could get it. They could really mm-hmm. appreciate, yeah, that could make a big, big difference. Because if you had posed that question before doing all the work that preceded that, uh, probably they would have shrugged their shoulders and, yeah, that'd be really nice. They wouldn't yeah. be the practical consequence. Yeah. So listening, are there a couple of other things? If I'm a leader out there listening to this and and I'm I really want to build the kind of organization that that has the trust and psychological safety and the ability to learn together and innovate, et cetera, are there a couple of places to start as a leader and what you're thinking about in your organization? Well, I always think the very first thing is you gotta have some partners. I mean I, I think it's a, it's it's obviously very simplistic, but I also think it's pretty useful rule of thumb. No individual ever transforms an organization. At least that's been my experience. And I've watched a lot of CEOs fail miserably, even though they were sincere and they made real efforts, but they didn't have a partner. Because, you know, you think of it this way, you know, you're growing something out of some sort of seed. I think the notion that the seed could be an individual is a flawed notion. 
I think the seed has to be a relationship. You've got two or three people who are starting to work together in a very different way. They become a generative seed and others will say, gee, I get it. I see what you've done. There's something you guys have got going here, which, which is important for all of us. So I think that's the first thing. Don't try to do it by yourself. Um, second is pick a couple of very practical issues. I mean, everything we're talking about now could be heard by some people as being very philosophical or very idealistic. It is idealistic and it is philosophical, but it's also immensely practical. So we always say the second thing is pick a really important problem area where you know you're stuck, where you know people say, well, we're, we're really not going to accomplish what we need to here. Uh, we're, we've been spinning our wheels for two years trying to do whatever it is. And, and with a couple of partners, you know, say, well, how can we bring a different quality of listening, thinking together, reflection, whatever you kind of want to focus on in, fo in working on this very practical problem? Because ultimately, you know, people do not come to work to be systems thinkers. They do not come to work to learn how to reflect. They come to work in order to accomplish things. So the second key principle is you anchor the change process in things that are important that people are trying to accomplish. And as mm. I said, I would particularly look for ones that people feel stuck. So you don't have to argue why this is useful. If, you know, if, if you're stuck enough, you make 10% progress and people go, wow. You know, that's a breath of fresh air. That was the first meeting I've been to in a year that was actually worth my time or whatever. Right. You start to gauge that they're making progress in very practical ways. And, and then thirdly, you know, you, you continually look for who's not in the process. In other words, one of the reasons teams usually get stuck is that they're either members inside the team or maybe critical folks outside the team who are really not connected to the process at all. So you could have somebody who just, you know, is absolutely stuck in their ways and part of the team. So how do you kind of include not just the two or three who are your kind of key partners, but others who are really on the fence or maybe even on the other side of the fence? So um, that's that will almost always be important sooner or later because one of the reasons you suck is because you don't have enough of the folks pulling in the same direction. Now, when you, if you're a manager of a team or have some sort of managerial authority, that can be sticky because you may you may have some individuals who just aren't there for the right reasons. They really aren't aligned. <laughs> they really do have some very different right. goals. And you know, it's 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 also a kind of a rule of thumb that every once in a while. Getting rid of one person who's wrong is worth more than getting 10 more people who are right. Um, and very often that one person who is problematic is there because they're a technical expert and everybody feels we can't get along without their technical expertise or they have history, power, maybe even authority. Um, and no, well, we can't, we can't do anything about old so-and-so because, you know, they're the, or the, the son of the founder or whatever, or, you know, they're, they, they, they're the expert on this subject. But ultimately the team either works or it doesn't. And, you know, I kind of, before I ever thought about this stuff and wrote about it and all that, I think I had all my experiences of it early on in, in playing the team sports. I think most young people have some very good intuitions, either from team sports or the performing arts. 
Because a lot of times performing arts are very team-based, right? A theater ensemble, a group of people making music together. Um, and and they have a pretty, you have pretty good intuitions about it's not just the individual skill. It's how the skills come together. And so difficult right. processes you have to go through to help people who are otherwise individually skillful. But in the team context, they're just not contributing as they could. You know, I remember years ago, a coach pulling me aside and saying, you know, you got to quit complaining about this or that. I can't remember the particulars because, you know, the team needs you to be part of the team, not to be just so obsessed about your own performance. Yeah. Well, it's so, I mean, I'm just, I've got a million different examples running through my head of when I've, I've seen this happen in, in teams in our industry. And uh, it's, it's so insightful. Dr. Senge, I could, I could literally talk to you for hours and hours on all of these topics. We've touched on so many different things, the need to build trust and how you learn as teams, collaborative leadership, and how we give people, as you said, the hard skills, not the soft skills, but the hard skills that they need to be successful, that listening and reflection. And, and I think that there's so much to be gained from really taking to heart your advice. I'm, I'm so grateful to you for joining us today on The Built Revolution. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks very much for asking. Thanks for listening to The Built Revolution pod brought to you by Continuum Advisory Group and the Construction Industry Institute. Continue the conversation on Twitter at Built Revolution Pod or email us at hello at builtrevolutionpod.com. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals being interviewed, and they do not necessarily reflect the views of the sponsoring organizations.